Before we dive into this first session, can we just give some encouragement to the music team that's serving us this morning? They have put together an excellent list of songs that will be raising our voices together and celebrating what the Lord has done. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this first session. Uh, Lord, we come to you now asking that you would instruct us, uh, that you would, just as we sang, illumine our hearts and magnify Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that in our awareness, in our understanding, that he would increase and that we would decrease that you would cause us to be more cognizant of the fact that he indeed is king and we are his servants. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love and worship your son, Jesus Christ, through the word that is being preached this morning. And I ask that you would do that for us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 18. Today we gather, have gathered together to discuss the ways in which Christianity is often diametrically opposed with our modern American culture. What we are not going to do today is we are not going to catalog the plethora of ways that our culture has proven to be wicked. If we did that, first of all, we'd just be here for months and months and months. But more importantly, we would just be considering problems and not actually looking to the answer. I don't have to convince any of you that evil runs rampant in our streets. All of those wicked actions, every last one of them, they are fruit of a poisonous root. And what we are going to do today is we're going to trace down to four of those roots by considering how our culture has been shaped by its views of self, significance, substance, and sexuality. It's never enough, though, to simply understand what is wrong. We're also going to see how the Scripture reveals to us the right way of thinking and the right way of living. And, of course, the place that we look to for truth and how we live, that's found in God's Word. So when we come together for a conference about culture, our focus is on the Word that God has given us. So when I consider culture, the very first set of verses that comes to my mind is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we're looking to do today, to understand what is good and acceptable and perfect, and to be conformed, not to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might live and function appropriately according to God's Word. The word world that is used in Romans 12 is a reference to the pattern or practices of the world that don't align with the standards of God. The Bible never uses the word culture. It's just not there. It's not the way that they would speak about things. That's a sociological construct that is very modern. Instead, it uses the word world. And notice that it does not speak about renewing your actions. This is not the point at which Paul is saying, do all of these things. Because the way that you live is based upon the way you think. Look, I say I believe that exercise is good for me. But I don't do it. I say that I think that. But if I really thought that, I would actually act upon it. 
Our transformation occurs by having our mind renewed. And it occurs by being shaped and transformed into the mind of Christ. And that's when our actions follow. Which is why Romans 12 begins with this gospel important message that then shifts down into all of the other commands that follow. Here's my point. It's not enough to simply reject the way that the world lives. We must also reject the way the world thinks. True repentance is not just a change of your actions. It's a change of heart about those actions. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 through 12. Do you know what that means? He said, look, I gave you a bunch of things to believe and to do, traditions that I told you to carry on. This means Christianity is a counterculture. It has always been a counter, counterculture. It is a system of beliefs that results in a system of practices that is to be maintained. And it has always been a minority remnant of people within the greater global population who actually truly know and live for the Lord. So today we're going to be hearing four different sermons that deal specifically with some of the areas that Christians often adopt worldly thinking. It is the goal of our time together that we would renew our minds because it can be really easy for us to say, I am not like the world because I'm not doing the things they're doing. But you might be thinking exactly like they're thinking. We start with self this morning because if you get this wrong, then it will necessitate that you get the other things wrong that we'll look at in sessions two through four as well. So let's think about self. Everyone in this room is self-aware. You are a self-aware being. You know that you exist and you know that you're alive. There are many things in the world that you don't know. There are things that you question. There are things that you don't understand. There are some things that you question, but you don't question whether or not you exist. You just know that you exist. I don't have to convince you of anything. The study of knowledge itself is called epistemology. How can you know anything? Well, the chief epistemological claim of our era is, comes to us from Rene Descartes, which says, cognito ergo sum, which if you don't speak Latin, like I don't speak Latin, it just means, I think, therefore I am. I'm fairly certain most of you have heard that phrase before. How can I know that I exist? Well, Rene Descartes claims that we know that we exist because we are thinking rational beings, because we can reason about our own existence. Well, Descartes referred to this phrase as the first principle of all philosophy. In other words, I can doubt everything else. I can question everything else. I can be confused about everything else, literally everything else. I need proof and reason to point me to the existence, purpose, and function of everything else. But I don't have to question whether or not I exist. I can know that because I reason. I have mental experience that's all my own. As you can see, Philosophers are regularly engaged in seeking answers to questions that they would already know if they just read their Bibles. You are a self-aware person. Descartes didn't convince you of that. He didn't have to prove to you that you exist. You already knew it before you heard his first principle. But the Bible reveals to us that there is something else that you know just as firmly and thoroughly as the fact that you exist. Romans chapter 1 we find this very important universal truth about the nature of self. If you're still there in the Word, look to chapter 1, verse 18 with me. It says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Let's pause there. The first principle of philosophy here in Romans is not that we are self-aware, but that we are God-aware. And everything necessary to know about God is, quote, plain to them. Nobody works to figure out that God exists. You know it just as fully and just as naturally as you know that you exist. How do you know that God exists? Quote, because he has shown it to them. God has actively revealed his existence to every single person. He has not hidden himself. Now, there are some ways that God has revealed himself to all people of all time, and we see in the next verse exactly how Paul says that he's done this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They, all people, are without excuse. The key word to notice here is the word perceived. I was having, having a conversation with a pastor friend of mine just recently, just a couple weeks ago, <clears throat> and he was telling me how frustrated he used to get, like really irritated, because this thing would constantly happen to him where he would preach on a Sunday morning. And then sometime later throughout the week, his wife would be in a conversation with him and one of their church members not the same church member, but very, a variety of them. And then during the week, one of the church members would be speaking with them, and his wife would literally quote what he said on Sunday morning. She would just rephrase it or add or actually say the exact same words as he would say. And the person from their church would say, Wow, I've never heard that before. <laughs> that blows my mind. And he was like, I was so frustrated that my, my wife who's not allowed to preach, was a better preacher than me. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, those people had heard it. They just had not perceived it. It didn't click with them. They didn't, they didn't actually grasp it. The information was given to them. They just didn't receive it. But notice that our awareness of God is not like that at all. According to God's word, every single person has perceived it. And not only have they perceived that he has existed... They've also perceived through his divine attributes, they perceived it clearly, it says. There is no murkiness or confusion. Every person since the world was created has been fully aware, clearly aware that God exists. And according to this text, we know that, we know that God exists, we understand that because of our experience in the physical world that God created. You process the physical world through your five senses, through those senses, your mind processes reality. Every single one of your senses is screaming to you, there is a God and you are responsible to him. Or to paraphrase Descartes, he said, you think, therefore, you know that you exist. But to paraphrase Paul, he says, you think, therefore, you know that God exists. This awareness, this perception of God means that everyone is in the exact same basket. We are all responsible to love and honor and serve him. We are therefore culpable if we don't, or to put it like Paul says it in this verse, so they are without excuse. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, 
there's not going to be any wiggle room for you to say, I just didn't know. First of all, that doesn't even work in human courts. I mean, I didn't know that the speed limit was 35. Try making that work in a court of law. When you stand before God, there will be no one who can accurately say, I just didn't know. Everyone, literally everyone knows God by nature of their existence. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now you might be asking, what in the world does all this stuff that we're talking about right now have to do with American culture? The answer is everything. In fact, it has to do with everything of every worldly culture. Every culture in the world is shaped around specific ways that groups of people begin thinking about life and about values. All of these groups will find their own ways to express exactly what this verse says. Their, their minds are full of futility and their hearts are filled with darkness, so they're going to find creative expressions to display that darkness and that futility. All creatures on earth outside of the church have that in common. Verse 22, claiming to become wise or claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Different cultures are defined by the ways that large swaths of the population come into agreement about what they will use to replace God. In my estimation, that is the central tenet of all cultures, the ways in which they have attempted to replace God. The reason that we have determined to focus on the four arenas of self, substance, significance, and sexuality today is that those four places are places that our society has attempted to exchange the glory of the immortal God with their inferior created things. So for this first session, I'm just making the argument that the chief replacement of God in our modern American culture is self. For the remainder of this first session, we are just going to look at five realms in which our foolish minds are darkened and our hearts put self where God alone deserves to be. For each of these five realms, we're going to see what it looks like when we exchange the glory of God for the idol of self. In other words, in each of these five realms, we are going to compare and contrast what it looks like to live in a God-centered way as compared to a self-centered way. And we're going to begin by considering authority. From the time that you are born, the Lord has designed you by the structure of the nature of the universe to understand the concept of authority. By nature of your dependence as a baby, you understand that you are under the authority of your parents. Small children get that. Small children understand that their parents are in charge, but small children also don't like that. They get the idea that mom and dad get to tell me what to do, but I don't want to listen to what they want me to do. I know that they are the boss, but I'm going to find every possible avenue that I can to undermine that authority. The fact that you know God exists and that you know you are responsible to him means that you are responsible to obey him and to live in accordance with his standards. What does it look like when someone refuses to subject themselves to the Lord of the universe? Well, exhibit A, Adam and Eve. By eating of the one tree, the only tree that they were told, don't go there, don't eat that. For the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. 
This is the quintessential picture in all of Scripture of someone knowing God and knowing his authority and understanding his commands and still rejecting God's will in order to do their own will. The person who refuses to subject themselves to a king, just using earthly terminology, we call that person a rebel. The unsaved self of any age and in any culture is an unsubjected self. It is a heart that cries out, I will not have God to rule over me. But this is not just something that occurs in unbelievers. Every single time that you sin, you are acting as though Jesus is not your king. Think of David. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. But what set him apart? What made him great? The answer is that he understood that he was a king who was subjected to a greater king. We see that in the way that he claimed the battle belongs to the Lord when he fought Goliath. We see that in the way that David did not take opportunities for self-advancement when he had the opportunities to assassinate his enemy, King Saul. He could have said, this is my right. That guy's bad. I can go ahead and take the throne. I've already been anointed. But instead, he recognized that there was a higher authority above him, and he does not. We see David explicitly state many times in the songs that he wrote, for example, Psalm, Psalm chapter 5, verse 2, where he addresses God by saying, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. That's how David spoke of the Lord, my king. Look, David was the king over a lot of people, but he was a good king when he recognized that he was subject to a greater king, the king of kings. Yet, even a faithful believer like David will fall short and will sin when you begin to act as though you are the ultimate authority. That's exactly what happened to David. What happened when he stopped recognizing God as king? And he took matters into his own hands. Well, then he also took a wife from one of his friends into his own hands. And then he took that man's life into his own hands. And because he acted as though he had all authority to do so, he put himself at the center of authority. And that's when his life crumbled. Christians, subject yourself to the Lord. Our culture is just like every other culture in all of history in that it is clamoring to find ways to reject the authority of God and to reject his standards, and most importantly, to reject his son. Do not drink the Kool-Aid that our culture is peddling, and do not begin to imagine that you can do anything without consequences. David was disciplined, and Hebrews 12 teaches us that if you belong to the Lord, he will discipline you when you reject his authority and then he will cause you to begin to walk in accordance with his own will. If you're a Christian, he'll do that for you. And it will be uncomfortable, just like it was uncomfortable for David. But central to this first point is this. We as believers must not be like our culture in our rejection of his authority. Submit yourself to the Lord. Closely related to this realm of authority is the realm of morality. What is good and what is bad? What kinds of thoughts and actions are to be praised and which ones are, are supposed to be forbidden? More importantly, who gets to decide that question? Because right now, if you go out on the street and you ask people about what is good and what is bad, you are going to get incredibly varied answers. Who gets to decide? The modern approach that our culture has taken in regards to morality is called subjective morality or situational ethics. The idea is that what is good for you might not be good for me. 
And most people who argue for situ situational ethics claim that since we can't live somebody else's experiences, we can never rightly judge them. We can never fully understand their actions, so we can't claim that they're right or wrong. The very first time that I remember being troubled by this uh, clear culture of situational ethics in practice is when I first moved to New York and I began working for an advertising agency in Manhattan. And at the time, I was working on a campaign for Above the Influence, which was basically the, what came after D.A.R.E., the American Don't Do Drugs campaign. Now, I remember vividly sitting around a room with a group of other people that were roughly my age, some that were a bit older, and we were all debating about whether or not it was actually a bad thing for kids to use marijuana. Now, to be clear, in that room, there was no data that was shared there was no real argument made. The people around me just kept saying things like, for me, I think it's okay to smoke weed because dot, dot, dot. Or I feel that it might not be good because fill in the blank. And the people in that room were struggling with the inconsistency of their position that they were working on a campaign that tells other people that you shouldn't do something. Who am I to tell them not to do this thing? That should be a personal decision. In other words, the Above the Influence campaign probably failed because you had a bunch of people who didn't think it was wrong to do drugs telling kids not to do drugs. When you put self in the position of determining right and wrong, several things always happen. First, you will always be more lenient on yourself than you are towards others. And secondly, you are never going to have a clear standard by which you can actually judge good and evil. It becomes the definition of subjective, even when it should be really obvious. The best example that I can give of this is when I had three people sitting at my kitchen table uh, just a few years ago. They were not believers, and I was trying to share the gospel with them. And I went about it by trying to understand their standards and try to understand where they were coming from. And during this conversation, I asked them if they could define for me how they come about their standards of good and evil. What do you use as a measuring rod for good and bad? And they explained to me, there is no such thing as good and bad. And so I just, I thought I was being clever. I said, what about Hitler? What about him? Can't we say he was bad? And I watched them squirm a little bit, but in the end, they all agreed with one another. We can't say that he was bad. There's no standard by which we can judge him. We don't know his life. We don't know what it was like. Even if we know history, we can't necessarily determine that that was evil. Now, that's an extreme position. I don't know that most people will hold to their convictions that far. But when we imagine that self rather than God rules the realm of morality, what we do is we begin to destroy all rules and all regulation with the exception of one. What I say goes. <laughs> Anything that would attack the identity of self, that must be defended. It should be no surprise to us that the main standard that our society is beginning to create by which it will deem you a sinner is if you begin to cast out or look down upon or disagree with the identity of someone else. It is an existential threat to the idol of self that there is a standard outside of our own personal choice. Consider that a short preview for the fourth session on sexuality. We're going to come back to that a great deal more uh, by the end of the day. But let's go ahead and move on and think about the fact that as Christians, we know there is a standard. We know that there is a right and wrong. We know there is good and evil, and we know where to find the answers about where to draw the line. 
Whereas situational ethics will often come to the conclusion that it is not wrong unless it is hurting someone, biblical truth teaches that anything that violates God's standard is to be considered bad, evil, and unrighteous. And all of us have broken that standard. The answer to how a Christian should live is not just say, be a better person when it comes to morality. It should be, we recognize the standards of God, and therefore we recognize we have fallen short of them. The Pharisees, they were excellent at looking at themselves and thinking of themselves as righteous because they modified their outward actions to facilitate a perception amongst the people that they were actually good. They were excellent at looking the part. They eliminated external sins. But Jesus looks at them and he says that you are a brood of vipers and hypocrites and children of hell, children of the devil. Just cleaning up your act does not undo the sins that you have committed in the past. And it also does not undo or eliminate the sin that is in your heart. There is no statute of limitations on your sin. The penalties don't expire. We have all fallen short of the moral standard of God, which is why if you are in this room and you are a Christian, you should be a worshipful person towards the Lord because you have been saved even though you have broken the standard. You have been forgiven even though you have fallen short. You have been set free from the, the curse of sin, which is death, because God has mercifully come to you and given you life. You see, when we think about morality, our culture can't stand the idea that there is a good and that there is a bad because they don't want to stand before the Lord and have to give an account. They love darkness rather than light. But we as believers, we should recognize that standard is actually good and that standard is something we have broken and that standard is what stands as a reason for us to be in hell. But by the grace of God, it is why we will be in heaven. If you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, I just want to explain to you what the gospel is. It's going to be mentioned and it will string through all of the sermons today. But I just want to make sure to explicitly invite you, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that you are a sinner. That's how the Bible describes you. You are someone who has broken God's perfect standard. And you need to know that if you are not a believer, you will answer for every one of those sins before the Lord, the righteous judge of heaven. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came to save lawbreakers like you and me, people who have embraced what is evil and rejected the Lord and what is good. He has come to save people like that because there's nothing else to save. That's you and that's me. We are lawbreakers, we are sinners. But God, by his mercy and in his grace, saves sinners like us. And he has done that through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross, who died for sinners and who has been raised for sinners and who lives for sinners today. And if you will just believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's shift forward now to think about the third realm that we'll consider. It's the realm of purpose. Why do you exist? what are you living for? Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this because Pastor Gage is going to spend the entirety of his sermon coming up in a few minutes. Uh, he's going to focus on this completely. But for now, let's simply examine how exchanging the glory of God for the idol of self is at the center of our modern cultural perspectives about purpose in life. In my research for this session, I came across an interesting modern philosophical explanation of purpose that's divided into two categories, mimesis and poiesis. Uh, Carl Truman, who wrote uh, the book The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, excellent read if you're interested in philosophy. I will say it gives a lot of questions, not a lot of answers, but if you want to know how we got here philosophically speaking, it's a great read. But in this book, he says, 
Put simply, these two terms refer, refer to two different ways of thinking about the world. A mimetic view regards the world as having been given an order and a meaning, and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Now, what kind of culture are we living in? Our modern culture has bought into the idea that we have to create purpose for ourselves. But you were not designed to do that, and it is a weight far too heavy to carry. The purpose of your existence is to love God and to glorify Him forever. Any purpose with you at the center of it will collapse into disappointment and ruin. Now, I don't want to step on Pastor Gage's sermon, so I'm going to move ahead from that. Um, but I do want to encourage you to think that purpose based on yourself will always disappoint. The fourth realm that we're going to consider is worship. You are a worshiper. You were born that way. You were created that way. That's what you were designed to do. You are a worshiper. Everyone was made to worship. As we read earlier in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, when people refuse to worship God, they don't stop worshiping. They just start worshiping something else. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, uh, 12 through 13, the Lord illustrates this abominable practice of swapping him for something else in this way. He said, be appalled, O heavens. Like he's just telling all of heaven, like this should make you sick. O heavens, be appalled at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have performed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. When we begin to worship any other God than the one true God, we're looking for water in a place we can't find it. We're searching for satisfaction in a place that only produces disappointment. But I want you to notice that not all idols are equal in the eyes of God. In the very same book of Jeremiah, the Lord actually notes that the idol of self is a uniquely wicked abomination to him. Jeremiah 16, 10 through 12 says, When you tell all these people these words... And they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? In other words, when the people say to you, what do we do? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord. They have gone after other gods. They have served them and they have worshiped them. There we see idolatry. They have forsaken me and they have not kept my law. There we see the results of idolatry. And because you have done worse than your fathers, what's worse than them bowing down to statues and serving them? For behold, every one of you follows your own stubborn, evil will, and you refuse to listen to me. <laughs> you think your, your family that preceded you, you think your father's generation was bad? You just do whatever you want to do. You put yourself at the center what does it look like to worship yourself? It means to serve your own will and your own desires above God's will and his desires. It means to make sacrifices of your time and your talent and your treasure in order to advance your own causes rather than God's purposes. It looks like building your own kingdom rather than prioritizing his kingdom. It looks like wicked self-indulgence rather than godly self-denial. And all of this is not only an abomination to the Lord, it is also destructive to you. 
Think about the burden that you bear when you become a self-worshipper rather than a God-worshipper. You have to attempt to find worth and value in the only minuscule amount of things that you accomplish or learn in your life. You can't find worth in the fact that you are a beautiful creation of God, made in his image to reflect his glory. That can't be a satisfying awareness and understanding of your self-value. No, you have to find it in the things that you do. And that is a very heavy burden that you cannot bear. You have to imagine yourself to be self-sufficient, always looking for ways to find, uh, use your own finite strength to provide for your needs rather than trusting for the Lord to care for you. That's a terrifying position to be in. That is a weight too heavy to bear. And you have to be self-subsisting in your joy, always attempting to find ways to get just a little bit more satisfaction rather than finding real and lasting satisfaction in knowing and believing that you are loved by God. And you have to be self-reliant in your wisdom, always trusting that you are making the right decision based upon this minuscule slice of information that you receive from your insufficient vantage point here on earth rather than trusting the wisdom that God, who created all things, has provided in his word. To put it really simply, you are a terrible God. Christian, you used to worship yourself. Whatever idols you have, you're at the center of them. As Christians, we are to put that away and we are to reject that kind of living by renewing our minds with the gospel. We are to be transformed into his likeness. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 says it this way, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, that old self, it says, was crucified. It was put to death at the cross. Every single day for the rest of your life, you are now going to actively and have to purposefully remove yourself from the center of the universe in your own imagination, and you are going to have to recognize that God alone is to have first place in your heart. That resets every time you wake up. If you're anything like me, that resets about every 20 seconds. You have to constantly be recognizing God, not me, is at the center. And God, not me, is the, the reason that I should be doing all things. And God, not me, is the one that I should be giving all of myself to. The, the last realm that we're going to look at today is the church. And sadly, the self-centered nature of our modern culture is actively seeping into the church in many ways. Uh, but we shouldn't be surprised that that's happening. Paul said to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that people who claim to be Christians and who are part of churches are going to fall into patterns of persistent wickedness. In that chapter, if you remember, he gives a list of all of these forms of sin, 19 different forms of sin. They're behaviors that will identify people who claim to be in the faith but are not genuine. But do you remember the very first thing on the list? He says, for people will be lovers of self. We shouldn't be surprised that this self-centered nature is seeping into the church. It's been doing it since the first century. What would it look like if we removed God from the center of church gatherings and we put self in the center instead? Well, it would look like removing the word of God from prominence. It would look like avoiding words or subjects that might sound offensive to people. It would look like a strong emphasis on what makes us feel emotional rather than what renews our mind. 
It would look like a church that majors on experience and that minors on holiness. It would look like an intentional focus on the felt needs of unregenerate people rather than the actual worship of the true and living God. In other words, the natural result of a church being impacted by our modern American culture is exactly what we find in the seeker-sensitive church movement. Brothers and sisters, the church exists to serve the Savior and to make him known. He is the head of the body. We are not. Your life as a believer and your life as a body of believers is to be dedicated fully to making the Lord central in all that you do. The most famous sermon on YouTube, the one that has the most likes and views, does not even say the name of Jesus one time. It does not preach about the Bible. It is therefore a glorified TED Talk and not an actual sermon. But I do want to say before we just look at the seeker-sensitive movement, this can just as easily happen here. It can happen at this church. If you're not from this church, it can happen just as easily in your church. And it happens one person at a time when we begin to prioritize self and our personal interests, our personal desire, our personal love, and what we want above giving all glory and honor and praise to the Lord and making our gathering, our fellowship, our union, both in the church building and outside of it with the church, about Jesus. It is about him. So allow me to close this first session in prayer with the words of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. This will serve as our closing. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.